We are uh, going to be in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and finishing things up uh, this morning. And uh, as we uh, get to that, um, I want to ask you a question about your life. Where your life is at right now. And I want to give you some, some possibilities for where your life might be at at this particular moment. Of have you fallen into, these would be like a default setting, have you fallen into a life of settling? Have you fallen into a life where you're saying good enough is good enough? Uh, you are happy with mediocre and have entrenched that as a value. You are happy with things as they are. You do not rock the boat and your family motto is status quo. Okay, that's you. Maybe you're just, you're just settled for where you're at. Uh, maybe though you've fallen into a life of uh, survival mode. Uh, this is you. You're just trying to make it through. Uh, you feel like uh, life is going a thousand miles an hour and you're just hanging on uh, for dear life. Uh, maybe uh, you've decided we're not taking anything else on because we can't even handle what we have going on right now. And you would say that your life is just one crisis after another. You're in survival mode. Maybe that's the life you've fallen into. Maybe, though, uh, the life that you've fallen into is a life of self-absorption. That is to say that you are looking out for number one. Life, you would say, life is all about me and the people around me and in my life are here to serve me and to make my life happier. You are um, definitely in the camp where you think you deserve everything that you get and more. And uh, the thought that goes through your mind regularly is, what do I get out of it? You may not say it out loud, but you're constantly thinking, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? Or maybe you've fallen into a life of one more, a life of success. Reaching for the stars and high achievement, and you're constantly telling yourself, I can do this, I can do this. Uh, because you want to put one more notch in your belt. You want to be able to get some more recognition for the accomplishments that you're pursuing. And you love the strokes that that brings. Have you fallen into any of these kinds of lives? Is this the life that you're living and it's an important question because as we come now to Luke chapter 24, these last verses of his gospel, I read this passage and, and you'll hear it in a minute. I, I get a sense here that Jesus is calling his followers to something greater than settling. Something greater than survival mode. Something greater than, than, than uh, self-absorption or, or the pursuit of success as the world defines success, that is. Jesus is calling us to something more than that. He called his followers to a God-glorifying, life-altering mission. And he promises them Power from on high, that's in verse 47 of what we're going to look at today. Power from on high to live out that kind of life. That same divine Holy Spirit power can and should be experienced by everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And this room is filled with people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And if you have claimed that, if you say, I'm a Christian, I've, I've accepted Christ into my life, I have the forgiveness of Jesus, I have that, then what you should also have is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And is there evidence of that in your life? Are you sensing his power? Would you testify to that right now? I have the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I know it. Again, in today's passage, we're going to see what that brings about in our lives when, when we have the power from on high. So let me read the passage. This is Luke 24, beginning at verse 36, uh, straight through to the end. I'll read this, I'll pray, and then we'll go after it together. Luke 24, 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet 
that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, come to the end of our study of the Gospel of Luke, we are um, being pressed here that a Gospel-saturated life is the only life for a follower of Christ. So God, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves, honest with you as we look at the Scriptures together today that that God, we would be um, looking for all the ways that we can allow the gospel to saturate, penetrate our lives, and then to flow out from us in mission. Help us to be attentive to what your word says, Father. I pray, as we often pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convince us and convict us of these truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? All right, in, in Christ, let's go after this. In Christ, I will experience power on high. This is going to show up in a number of different ways in our lives. Let's look at each of them. I'll experience power from on high, uh, first of all, uh, to overcome all fears and doubts. To overcome all fears and doubts. So verse 36, uh, they, uh, this is the disciples now, uh, they were talking about these things. Uh, Cleopas and uh, the other disciple who's unnamed had just come back from Emmaus after having their encounter with the resurrected uh, Christ. They're back in Jerusalem. They've now gathered with the followers who were still there. A handful of them have had some kind of an encounter. Peter has had an encounter uh, with the uh, resurrected Christ. And, and they're in the upper room. They're all talking about this. They're all talking about what's happened to each of them and comparing stories. And then all of a sudden, as they're in the room talking about these things, Jesus freaks them out by just like, poof, appearing in the room. And you kind of get a sense here, like they're frightened and they're afraid. And you would think like, Jesus, maybe if you just knocked on the door, it wouldn't have frightened them quite as much. But he has his own reasons for just popping up right there in their midst. And you can tell that they were freaked out because the first thing that comes out of his mouth is peace to you. But very appropriate because they were not feeling peaceful at all with someone just appearing in the room. Especially given that it was Jesus and everything else that had happened to them. Quite the opposite. In fact, they're in turmoil, which is obvious from their reaction. Verse 37, they're startled. They're frightened. They thought they saw spirits. Some translations, King James Version, would use ghosts there. They thought they saw a ghost. First of all, there are no ghosts. Everybody agree with that? Everybody agree with that or not? There are, there are no ghosts unless we're talking about the Holy Ghost. We knew that there, there are spirit beings and that's really more the thrust here. They thought that he was a spirit being of some sort. We know that there are demons and we know that there are angels. So there are spirit demons and they, in their mind, there's some kind of spirit demon has, or spirit uh, a person has just showed up in their midst and they don't quite know what it is or who it is. It's actually legit to say that the disciples were suffering here. If you look at all of the characteristics of what they're showing, how they're feeling, how they're reacting, you go back to the Thursday night, it's a pretty intense situation. Jesus is praying 
They can tell that there's an intensity building up. There's a betrayal, an arrest. The whole thing is unjust. The Jews convinced the Romans to crucify him. There's no real trial here. They watch him get savagely beaten so badly that he can't even carry his own crossbeam to the place of execution. And then he's horribly crucified and dies six hours later. They spend a, a, a very anxious Friday night and Saturday wondering, trying to figure out the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility that these disciples are suffering from PTSD because of all that they had just experienced. That's the language that we would use for it today. So traumatic, so upsetting. And we could give them a pass on what they have experienced and their reactions and their inability even to grasp what this all means. The reality is, if any of us, we don't want to be too hard on them, if any of us were transported back or we were living at that time in the first century and we happened to be one of his disciples and we had witnessed all of those things and we were in that upper room and Jesus showed up in the midst of us, we'd be just as frightened and just as confused and just as traumatized. Nobody here would have figured it out. We'd be just like them in, in all of this. It's just also new to them and and of course, resurrection itself, they're trying to figure that out. Some of us have seen Jesus, but what is the nature of this? Because resurrection is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it's an impossibility. Resurrection doesn't happen. So they're trying to put it all together. And Jesus acknowledges that with his question in verse 38. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus is not being flippant with them. He's not being dismissive of them in any way. He's not even being dismissive of anybody who has fears and doubts today. Please don't hear that. He's actually wholly committed to getting them out of that place. He's asking the question so we can identify what the issues are and then let me lead you out of that to a better place. He wants their doubts answered. He wants their fears relieved. And so he says in verse 39, see that? See my hands and feet? See that it's me? It's me. Touch me. Look at me with your eyes. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm very much here. I'm very much physically here. Verse 40 says, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41 at the end says... Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. If this happened today, would be, do you have any pretzels? Do you have any, any, any of those goldfish? Can I have some of those, please? <laughs> Anybody got a pepperette on hand? He, he just ate something to prove to them that he's actually physically there. And he took and ate, verse 43, he took and ate it before them. In other words, Jesus did all the party tricks that you would do to prove that you're actually a human being. Did them all. That he was physically right there with them. Now look back, verse 41, I skipped over this when I read through it, and, and while they still, this is a bit awkwardly worded, while they still disbelieved for joy, disbelieved for joy, and were marveling. This is, this is just simply elation. They're elated, they're happy, they're filled with joy, but they're not quite sure, mm, should we be? Uh, why are we? Uh, what are we happy about? Is this really, I feel like I'm happy, but is this really real? So it's, it's joy and, and happiness all muddled together with confusion and disbelief. Now Jesus is going to some lengths here to actually prove to them that he has been, and this is a very important word now, bodily, bodily resurrected from the dead. That he has been physically resurrected. In other words, they're not seeing a ghost. They're not seeing a spirit person at all. And he knows that their confusion will end when the truth is received. Now this point is so important because some heresies, some false teachings will tell us that if, if there's acceptance that Jesus was a historical person and a good teacher and that he was in fact executed by the Romans and he was buried, that he was resurrected 
not in a physical sense, but you could be a Christian and believe that he was resurrected in a spiritual sense, and you could be totally inspired by that. Oh, Jesus was such a good teacher, and we have his teachings, and it's such a great way to live, and it doesn't matter to me if he was bodily resurrected from the dead or not. I just feel like his spiritual resurrection was so inspiring to me that it's motivating me to live my life in a certain way. And here's the thing, Jesus didn't leave that option open to us. Nor is it sufficient. Nor would any of the apostles given their life for that message if they didn't actually believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And so when we say he lives, we don't mean that in an inspirational kind of way. I mean, we mean that in a literal way. He was raised from the dead. He physically rose from the dead. God incarnate. God came to this earth, became a human being, lived among us, lived as a human being, human in every way except he did not have the sin nature. Gave his life on the cross for us and was physically resurrected from the dead so that the incarnate Christ, God incarnate, was raised from the dead. This is part of what we would say are the non-negotiables of, of what we believe as, as evangelical Christians, as, as, as those who believe in the Bible, who follow Jesus Christ. And all the way back in Bible college, I remember learning these, these five, this kind of alliterated scheme to remember this, but the non-negotiables for evangelicals. Verbal inspiration, we believe in that. Verbal inspiration, that is to say that we believe that the very words that we have in the scriptures were inspired or the Holy Spirit gave those words so that what we have here is, is the reliable, authoritative word of God. We believe in verbal, in spirit, the spirit, inspiration coming to us. That's the word of God. We believe that. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe that Mary had not been with a man that the Holy Spirit came upon her and that she conceived Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That no man was involved in that. We believe, and we believe in the miracle of that. We believe in the vicarious atonement. Vicarious means substitution. That Jesus Christ gave his life in my place. That the perfect Savior of the world gave his life so that I wouldn't have to die for the penalty of my own sin. Atonement, the covering of sin. So he is the substitutionary covering, his blood paying the price for my sin. We also believe in the visible resurrection, what we're talking about here, that he was bodily, visibly resurrected from the dead. And we believe in his victorious Return. We believe that he is coming back and this provides the motivation for the mission we'll talk about in a bit. His, his, his victorious return, Revelation 19, Jesus Christ is coming back, riding on the white horse to culminate all of history, to bring about the redemption of humanity and to usher in eternity. So those are the non-negotiables non of what we believe and I'm giving you all of that again so that you can see that the resurrection really is very central to everything we believe. And any doubts that you have and any fears that you're carrying around about today or about tomorrow are going to be dispelled by the power of God. Listen when you see Jesus Christ for who he is. Get your gaze on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Understand what he's done for you. And whatever fears you have about anything this world could throw at you, whatever doubts you have about him, about your life, about how things are going to play out, listen, all of that melts away. When we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, that comes as a result of the power from on high. Notice this, secondly, when we have that power, we can uh, grasp the implications of God's word. We grasp the implications of God's word. We're at the end 
of Luke's gospel. It's been a, a long journey through uh, this book and we cannot ignore the implications or the impact of Jesus' life and teaching in our lives. Uh, we surveyed uh, the congregation a little bit. We said that if you have any input into what we want to teach next, we're coming to the end of Luke's gospel here, the end of a ministry year at the end of June. We're kind of racing toward that. And then um, in, in September, we're launching a new ministry year and whole new, where are we going to go? What are we going to study in God's word? And so we asked you for some input on that. And one man said, you know, here we are coming to the end of Luke. And he was like, why don't we just turn the page and study John's gospel? And he was like, you can't get enough Jesus. Amen to that? You can't get enough Jesus. Now, Jesus is definitely in the rest of the Bible as well, but I understand what he's saying. Let's just go back over his entire life again and hear all the things he taught again, and let's hear it this time from John's perspective. And I love the heart of that because there's a sense here that we want to understand the implications of God's word. This isn't just about learning about Jesus and filling my mind with knowledge about him. We're talking about implications and impact in our lives. We can't simply be, be stimulated by the content of Jesus' life and walk away saying, that was interesting. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about being interesting. It's about changing our lives to become like him. And if I was to press every one of you in a one-on-one -on -one conversation about the, the, the principal influences that are in your life right now, we would all have multiple influences. But if Christ is not at the center, if Christ is not at the top, if Christ is not overwhelmingly greater than all of those other influences, then we have a problem. Now, I could press some of you and, and, and you would say, the major influences in my life, I would just say my parents were such a major influence in my life. And that's true. Our parents are a major influence in our life for good and for ill. For me, it's all good because my parents go to this church and we're in the last service. And that's not true. Our parents are a massive influence. Our families are a massive influence in our lives. There's no doubt about it. But greater than Jesus... Traditions. We have, you know, we have traditions in our family. We've always done these things. And tra traditions are an influence in our lives. But greater than Jesus? Or maybe we talk about our ethnicity. I'm from this country. I'm from that country. That's a great influence in my life. And I get that that's a great influence. It's a God-given influence. It's not greater than Jesus. Your ethnicity is not greater than Jesus. It's not the culture around us. It's not the, the education that we got. I've been so influenced by these teachers in my life. I got this degree and that degree. I pursued this course of study and it's been greatly influential in my life. I get it has been, but not greater than Jesus. Not greater than his word. Jesus said to these confused, fearful, doubting disciples, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is what I taught you. And then he takes them to the Bible. Jesus takes them to the Bible. He takes them to the Old Testament scriptures, which they had at the time, and he says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's just identified the three major divisions of the Old Testament. The books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. That all of this must be fulfilled. Verse 45, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Full stop. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I mean, that's the thing that needs to happen today. That God would open our minds to understand the scriptures. Wouldn't that be a great prayer? Just take that verse now and just adapt that into a prayer that every time you open the word of God, every time you're here on a Sunday morning listening to the word of God, every time you get to your small group and you're opening the word of God, every time you're opening it on your own, that you would be praying this prayer, God, open my mind to understand the scriptures. I need to understand it. I don't want to just read it to get a check mark. I read through the Bible in a year. Check mark, check mark, check mark. 
four chapters a day, check mark, check mark, check. What'd you read? I have no idea. Four chapters, check mark, check mark. <laughs> Got through the Bible in a year. But did you understand it? Did you, did you pray this prayer before, or, or was that too much time to take out so that you wouldn't get your four chapters done, so you wouldn't get your Bible done in a year? God, open my mind to understand the Scriptures. Now, this understanding is not simply for the purpose of knowledge. We could be mistaken very quickly in thinking that's what it is, that, that knowledge, that understanding here simply equals knowledge, that I know more about the Bible. But in fact, this word understanding leads us toward wisdom. Wisdom's way different than just knowledge. Wisdom is, I heard what you said, I grasped it, and I know what I need to do with it. That's what understanding is. That's what wisdom is. See, wisdom and understanding both imply application of the truths that I've heard to my life. I'm changed because of it, or I'm changing because of it. I'm being transformed because I understand the scriptures. I get the meaning of it, and I get the application of what I'm hearing and what I'm reading. And this by the way, 100% is reinforced by the Apostle Paul. Look at his letter to the Corinthians. This is what he says to them about teaching, about Scripture. He says, we have received the, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God. We have this promise, we have this gift of the Holy Spirit, this power from on high, that we might understand the free, things freely given to us by God, His Word. And we impart this, we teach this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual are people who have the Holy Spirit. Okay? The, the promise that we're going to talk about here, the power from on high, that's the Holy Spirit. You have that so you can understand the spiritual truths. You have understanding of the Scriptures because you have the Holy Spirit. You're a spiritual person. The natural person who does not have the Spirit unsaved, does not have the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Reads the Bible, doesn't have the Spirit, like, what is this, man? This doesn't make any sense to me. And you, some of you know unbelievers in your life who have read parts of the Bible and they don't get it. They just don't get it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to, there's the word, understand them. Not able to comprehend and apply. Might be able to comprehend it. I understand the facts about what Jesus did, about how he gave his life, how it's a substitution. They could articulate all of that back, so there's a cognitive understanding, knowledge, but not application. I don't know how to apply that to my life. Not able to understand them because, Why? They're spiritually discerned. This only happens because you have the power of the Spirit. You can only grasp the implications of God's Word because you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And we need that prayer. God opened my mind to understand the Scriptures. We need that prayer. We need the Holy Spirit because there's no other way to grasp both the meaning and the application of the Word of God. So whatever changes you need to make on that, I mean, I think you're hearing. If you're not into the word, if you're not reading it, if you're not studying, if you're not understanding, if you're not praying this prayer, then that's a place where some change needs to happen. All right, ready for the next one? Ready for the next one? Yeah. Here we go. We also need the power from on high to embrace the message of salvation. Now I'm gonna address those in the room who maybe don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it is right to say, and controversial, controversial I know, it is right to say, though, I'm going to give you a line, we play no part in our own salvation. Everybody good with that? We play no part in our own salvation. I'll explain that. As human beings, gripped by our sin nature, hostile toward God, the scriptures say we're actually enemies of God, we are not able to save ourselves nor are we inclined to actually even pursue God. We're not inclined toward Him. We're inclined toward ourselves. We're inclined toward our sin. The Apostle Paul actually said this um, 
In Ephesians 2.8, it's a very common verse. A lot of us know it. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You can't earn it. God just simply said, here, be saved. He gave it to you. Now, we need the power from on high. That's what we're driving toward here, just to be saved. And so Jesus said, verse, verse 46 and 47 here, thus it is written in the Old Testament that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that, now two very important words here, repentance and forgiveness. If you have your Bibles out, just underline those. If you have an e-Bible open, just highlight those two words, repentance and forgiveness. That for repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. This is the message we preach. We preach repentance we preach forgiveness of sins. That's the whole message in a few words. That it should be proclaimed in his names, notice to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the means by which anyone is saved, the means by which anyone has their sins forgiven is by repentance and nothing else. Repentance, we've talked a lot about that, obviously, because it's at the forefront of what we ought to be preaching here, obviously, but repentance we've defined before as, as agreeing with God. In repentance, I agree with what God is saying, and, and I turn from my way of living to his way of living. And what I'm always going to find is that's a 180 degree turn, because my way is away from God. I'm hostile toward him. I'm an enemy of God. I'm going in the wrong direction, exactly the wrong direction. And when I agree with God, I'm turning, I'm going in completely, a completely opposite direction. Now, if we play any part in our own salvation, and, and we don't, and we don't accept that from our perspective, it kind of looks like we do. It would be this repentance. A change of mind, turning from my way of living to Christ. And it's God who draws us. It's God who saves us. And it's God who actually puts the impetus in us to even repent in the first place because faith itself is a gift of God to us. I mean, every part of this is about God's grace gift to his sin-natured enemies. Now that said, Jesus uses these two words, repentance and forgiveness. And we see salvation from our earthbound, limited perspective. And so, so for, for us, it's, I heard a message about Jesus. I was in a really tough place. I realized that I needed that in my life. I confessed my sins. I admitted I was a sinner, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Follow him. Having repented of my way of living and turned myself over to him. That's the way we always see it. That's our earthbound perspective on the entire thing. And that's actually what Jesus is expressing here. You do your part, your part, repentance, agree with God in turn, and God will do his part, forgiving of the sins. Because that's not going to happen any other way. He, again, he's giving us both perspectives now on the salvation transaction that's taking place. And so the, the appeal right now, I said this point was for those in the room who have not yet received Jesus Christ as the Savior of their life. If you have not yet repented, you are not yet on God's course, you have not yet agreed with him about these things, then, then and I'm appealing to you to do that right now. If you have any sense of the Holy Spirit working in your life right now and bringing clarity about some of these things and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like I need to do that, then do it. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Receive the power from on high that he is offering in this very moment. That pulling on your heart, that, that clearing up of, of your thoughts about this. Receive him. There's no other way to get it. You know, we, we witnessed a baptism a, a few minutes ago, and there was one in the first service as well, and two clear stories of, of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but each of them knows that 
while baptism is commanded, it doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you if you were baptized as a baby. It doesn't save you if you're baptized as an adult in, in full immersion. It, it doesn't, baptism doesn't save. It's a, it's a symbol of something else that's happened. So if you're relying on your baptism for your salvation, if that's going to be your claim before God, that is not going to work. Giving, giving your money, being generous, doing what the scriptures say. Yes, giving is commanded in the scripture. It's, it's commended by God as something that every Christ follower should want to do. You can't give enough money to make up for your sin. You just can't. You can't be saved by being in a worship service. You can't be saved by, by being part of the church, though we're told in the scriptures not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we are told to be the church together. We'll look at that in a few moments. That you are told to, to worship the Lord, but none of that saves. That's all the expression of a heart that's already been saved and just loves God and wants to be a part of his thing. You can't be saved by moral living. I'll clean my life up. I'll do better. I'll make better choices. We are commanded to be holy even as he is holy. But being holy, living a moral life does not save. There's only one way to be saved. Agree with God and turn confessing your sin and, and receiving him as your Lord and Savior. Now here's the thing, you, you, we don't do a lot of this. Anyway, you don't have to stand to receive Jesus. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You can become a follower of Christ where, right where you are right now. By simply saying to God, my way is not working. And I agree with what your word says about all of this, about Jesus. I confess my sin to you right now and I'm giving my life to you right now to follow you. And I hope that conversation is happening in this room right now between you and God. And he's gonna send you the power from on high to do that receive his grace and his love and his salvation. Now's the time. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit in this moment, if that's you. Now, once you have that, you're also gonna need the power from on high, notice this next, to witness to the world of God's forgiveness. Well, once, you, once you have Christ, you become part of the people of God who have been charged with fulfilling the Great Commission to tell the world about Jesus. This is a message that is to go, verse 47 said, to all nations. It, that had to go out to you and me. So for 2,000 years, these original witnesses, they told people who told other people, generation after generation, country after country, continent after continent, until you and I here in the 21st century are, are still receiving the gospel and still proclaiming it out to others. That's to go to all nations. We receive the power from on high to witness to the world of God's forgiveness. And most of us are aware that the Gospel of Luke is volume one of a two-volume set that also includes the Acts of the Apostle. In fact, um, this is interesting by, by word count. Um, I suppose they do this by computer now, but it, it was done uh, previously to that when people just counted things. Um, by word count, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Did you know that? Only wrote two books, Luke and Acts, but that constitutes the greatest amount uh, of, from any one author. He wrote 27% of the New Testament. Anybody know who's number two? The Apostle Paul. He wrote 13 letters and um, he wrote 23% of the New Testament. Who's number three? John, correct. John's gospel, his three letters plus the book of Revelation, he gets 20%. So um, gold, silver, bronze, Luke, Paul, John, 
Uh, six others in fourth place. Um, they, they wrote, um, six other authors wrote the other 30% of the New Testament. None of that had anything to do with the message. I just thought it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> so the, these last verses foreshadow what Luke actually intends to talk about in, in the book of Acts. He's going to talk about the empowering of the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission to preach this message. This message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Which, by the way, that was Jesus' message. It's going to be the apostles' message. And if you go back to Luke chapter 3, all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, that was John the Baptist's message. It's the same message that's being preached all the way along. And not only empowering us to carry out the mission, but empowering us to simply be the church. That's what Jesus is pulling together here. He said in verse 48, you, plural, are witnesses of these things. You, you saw all of this. You were with me for three years. You saw the miracles. You saw the mighty works that I did. You heard all the things that I taught. You saw it all. You saw the crucifixion and now you've seen the resurrection. You've seen all of this. You need to start telling people about it. I mean, it's so critical that these very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection would proclaim the message. Because they saw him. They talked with him. They knew him. And Jesus personally commissions them to go out and do this. And it's passed on to us, one generation to another, without the advantages, after this first generation, without the advantage of being eyewitnesses. That we have to take on the same commission. I love the story. It's actually in John's gospel, another post-resurrection story. And remember who the most stubborn one to believe was? Thomas. Thomas. And Thomas made this bold declaration. To our knowledge, no one else had said this, but he just said, unless I see the wounds, put my finger right in them. That's rather bold. I'm not going to believe. Thomas is the only one who said that. And Jesus was so patient and gracious with him and, and meets with him, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, gets right up with him, Thomas. says, Thomas, Take a look. Put your fingers right here. Take a look. Feel, feel the wound in my side. And Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, this is, this is in John 20, he says to him, you have believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's, that's you and me. We're blessed. We're blessed in an extraordinary way by the power that comes from on high because we have believed, yet we have not seen the wounds. We have not seen Christ. And yet we believed. But they couldn't do it, nor can we do it without the power. Jesus said, verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Here's our phrase, from on high. And we find out that that promise is the promise, the power from on high. It's all the Holy Spirit. We're gonna find out more about it in Acts chapter one and two when Luke writes that second volume. Luke 2, 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That fulfills an Old Testament prophecy that's in the book of Joel 2, verses 38 through 32. This possessing of the Holy Spirit. And there's so many different functions and, and aspects of the Holy Spirit's work. There's filling and there's baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a sealing of the Holy Spirit. There's indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And to understand all of that, but that work of the Holy Spirit as we understand it all is the mark of a true believer. That if you truly love Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit working in your life. And if there's no evidence of the Spirit in your life, then I'm afraid there's no evidence of you truly being saved. And that might explain why, and this is all under the topic of the mission, that might explain why you have no actual ambition, desire, you are not working in any way toward the mission that he gave to us. Because if we're saved and we have the Spirit, then we would want to be engaged in the mission. We'd want to tell other people about Him and be witnesses of these things. One more. In Christ I will experience power from on high 
to be the church. To be the church. Now there's a, there's a time span between verses 49 and, and 50. Luke, when you read it here, it kind of reads like it all happened on the same day at the end of Luke's gospel. He, he uh, makes that much clearer when you get into Acts 1 and 2. Uh, really, the time lag between the two, and you can write this right into your Bible if you want, but between verses 49 and 50, there's a 40-day gap that happens there. And Luke is writing what he calls an orderly account, but he's not including every detail in his orderly account. And he knows that right here at the end of Luke's gospel, what he's really doing is he's just giving a little teaser about the ascension and about the power from on, on high and the promise that's coming. It's just a little teaser about that. But when he gets into Acts, especially Acts 1 and 2, he's going to explain that in far more detail. So verse 50 would read like this. Then, 40 days later, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's the ascension, Acts 1, 9. Again, more detail around that. Now notice the response, verse 52. Here's, here's how the disciples respond. They worshiped him. They worshiped him. And then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We started this message talking about fears and doubts. And now all of their fears and all of their doubts have been pushed aside by this joy that they have, having spent this time with the resurrected Christ. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, verse 53, and were continually in the temple blessing God. So in those early days, they were still getting together as a, as a greater church. And if you look right to the very end of Acts chapter 2, you'll see a description of the early church in those first uh, days and weeks. And you see that they were still gathering in the temple as a large group to worship the Lord. And there's no small indication here of the divinity of Jesus Christ, in fact. Verse 52 says they worshipped him. If he was some kind of disembodied spirit, if he was merely an angel or merely a man, he would have refused the worship. But he doesn't refuse it. He receives it because Jesus Christ is God. And if we boiled everything down to the, to the one thing that the church ought to be, it would be this, that we are worshippers of Jesus Christ. And when we set the priority of worship, of being vertical in our focus and setting our gaze upon Jesus Christ alone, then every other priority in our life begins to fall into place. In worship, we anticipate the glorious reunion with Christ in heaven, the scene of never-ending worship that awaits us there. And that's the source of the great joy that Luke mentions characterizes these first believers. We can have that too in our following and worshiping of Christ. They were continually blessing God, continually blessing God. Does that describe you? No matter where you are, being a worshiper of Christ is not just what we've done here on a Sunday morning. Now I've done worship and now I'm going out to live my life. Worship pursues us. This is corporate worship. Let's put the adjective in front of it. This is the worship we do together. But the totality of our lives from this place out until we gather again together here next Sunday, it's all worship. Is Christ declared to be worthy in everything that I say and do? Every moment of my life, continually blessing God. Now all of this is happening as Jesus is, he's, he's gathering them. He's, he's saying this to them as a collective whole. And he's beginning to take the very first steps in molding the, them into what will be the church. This has been the whole point of Luke's gospel is to tell the life of Jesus and then to get us right to the brink and what the acts of the apostles will take us all the way into is the establishment of, of what the church is. C.K. Barrett said this in commenting on Luke's gospel. He said, in Luke's thought, the end of the story of Jesus is the church and the story of Jesus is the beginning 
of the church. So what Jesus is doing here in Luke 24 and rolling right into the book of Acts, Acts 1 and 2, is he's establishing the uncommon community of disciples that will be the church before one another and be the body of Christ, fulfill the mission, secondly, that he's given us in this world to tell the nations about Jesus and then to await his return. Be the church, fulfill the mission, and await his return. And that's why we work so hard on being the church because that's what Jesus told us to do, to be the church. As imperfect, this is an imperfect church, as imperfect and as flawed as this church is, do you know how many flaws we have in this church? Curiously, it's an equal number to the number of people we have in this church. <laughs> coincidence? No coincidence. As difficult as the church is. Do you know how difficult people are? You reacted more than 9 o'clock did. They were stone silent at that point. <laughs> I don't want to admit that people are difficult because the difficult one's beside me, right? Is that it? We know we're difficult. As imperfect, as flawed, as difficult as we are, as the church is, we are commanded by Jesus Christ to be the church. There is no other option. And that's where this gospel takes us, right to the front door, of being the church. So God has given us a mission. He's given us people to do the mission with, and he's given us the power from on high to get it done. And if you're missing any part of that, it's time to repent. If you're missing, if you're missing the part where you have this for yourself, it's time to repent. If you're, if you're missing the part where you're engaged in the life of the church, that you're part of the church, then you need to repent. If you're not a member, become a member. If you haven't been baptized, get baptized. If you're not serving somewhere, start serving. If you're not giving, start giving. If you're not in a small group, get in one. Whatever you need to do to become part of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ that he has commanded us to be a part of, do it. Repent. If you're not engaged in the mission, not inviting anybody, don't care about that, not doing anything in any way to advance the cause of leading people to Jesus Christ, it's time to repent and get on the mission to get with God's people to do it and to experience the power from on high that Jesus Christ provides us. The gift of the Holy Spirit promised to us in this gospel by Jesus Christ.